0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And
2: I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Each April, we celebrate Donate Life Month, and the National Donate Life Month theme this year is Life is a Beautiful Ride, using a bicycle to serve as a symbol of progress, renewal, and the circle of life.
2: On today's program, we'll discuss the importance of organ donation with the director of Mayo Clinic's Transplant Center.
1: And to complete our transplant show, we'll have two transplant patient stories before and after. Tracy, it is that time of year again. It's Donate Life Month, a time to again raise awareness about organ donation and encourage people to become organ donors. Transplantation is truly life-saving treatment for patients with organ failure. And the success rates are better than they've ever been. But we just don't have enough organs for all the people who need them. It's been a problem forever. And there are still thousands of patients on the waiting list. And a new one is added every 10 minutes. Another patient in need, no donor.
2: Some 20 people die every day waiting for an organ. What's new in organ transplantation and what's being done to improve the number of organ donors? Joining us this week on Mayo Clinic Radio is the director of the Transplant Center at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Charles Rosen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rosen.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
2: Happy Donate Life Month.
3: Yes, it is. We... Really want to promote organ donation to help our patients.
1: We're glad to be able to catch you between transplants. Yeah. <laughs> so organ shortage, still a big problem. It is,
3: Tom. There are just far too many people in need of organ transplantation than there are organs available for them. Uh, we do everything we possibly can to increase public awareness about the benefits of donation and also about living donation, which can help with kidney and liver transplantation.
2: On my notes here, it says the need has never been greater. Does that mean that more organ donation is being need, being done?
3: There are more uh, potential transplant candidates. Transplantation has become very successful uh, where the outcomes are just superb for almost every organ. And uh, with that, uh, we've expanded our indications for transplantation and recognized diseases that can be better treated with transplantation if only we had enough organs for the patients in need.
1: Let's talk about some of the success rates. I assume that kidneys are the most commonly transplanted organ. And your success rate, and, and let's compare uh, both the, the living donors, if you get a living donor uh, kidney or a deceased donor, what are your success rates longer term? Five, yeah. Let's say five years. In general,
3: the success rates of one year are about 90% for all the organs. And living donor kidneys do exceptionally well with success rates at one year of about 98%, and that's for patients that are off dialysis and leading a fairly normal life, up and about, doing the kind of things they ought to be doing. Once a patient survives to a year, the likelihood that they're alive three or five years later is another 90% of that. So in general, our three to five-year survival rates are somewhere between 80 and 85% for most of the organs. Lungs are still a challenge Uh, long-term. The lung is susceptible to either chronic rejection or problems with the vessels within the lung that can lead to to the failure of the lung after a period of time. So the success rates for lungs aren't quite as good as for the other organs.
1: When you do a lung transplant, do you normally do both lungs or just one? I don't ever do a lung transplant. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an abdominal transplant He's a liver surgeon. Man. <laughs> How about your
3: friends? Uh, my friends, friends uh, they, do a fine, uh, they do a fine job with the lung transplantation, and it, some patients require just one lung, some two, and it might depend on the situation with the donor at the time that the, the lungs become available.
1: Do you ever do a heart and a lung together?
3: Uh, they can be done together, and uh, we've done uh, hearts with livers and kidneys and lungs with livers and kidneys as well with combined organ transplantation
2: if the If the number of uh, folks on the waiting list just continues to grow what which one do they need is is most urgently needed? Is it heart transplants or or is it just kidney transplants
3: the The need um, it, the organs don't really compete with each other for right. the need, um, so there are far more patients awaiting kidney transplantation, and we look at kidney transplantation as a life-saving transplant and certainly a, a, a lifestyle-saving transplant uh, to avoid dialysis three or four times a week. And uh, overall survival is better. It's more critical with heart, lung, and liver transplantation where the patients are oftentimes critically ill and receiving a transplant when they're in the intensive care unit with a uh, you know, potential to only survive another day or two.
1: So let's talk a minute about uh, liver transplants because I know that's that's one of your uh, specialties. Uh, being a living liver donor, what does that really in, involve, and in? how much of the liver do you take, and what are the risks to the to the donor?
3: Well, the reason that we can do living donor liver transplantation is because the liver is an amazing organ. It'll grow back to its normal size.
1: The only organ in the body that does that,
3: right? That's right. The kidneys will enlarge after you take out one kidney. The other kidney will enlarge, but it doesn't actually grow back to the complete size, and it doesn't recreate all the microstructure that the liver does. With the living donor liver transplantation, we can take out up to almost 70% of the donor liver, and the remaining liver in the donor will grow back. It takes a while to grow back completely, up to 9 to 12 months, but amazingly, the liver can double in size during just the first week of recovery.
2: You can take 70% of the donor's liver?
1: 69. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it, it's got, That's got to be a fairly bloody operation, because the the, uh, the liver what has a... Surgeon. a, 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 a Significant blood supply. There's a lot of blood vessels going to the liver. There
3: are. And uh, when we do a liver, uh, a living donor liver resection, the liver's normal, which makes it easier to divide. And we actually use either a, an ultrasound dissector or a fancy squirt gun that squirts the cells away from the bile ducts and the blood vessels so that we can see them and then individually tie them off or oversew them so that they don't bleed. And actually, for most of our living donors, um, we don't need any blood at all. Uh, we'll oftentimes use the cell saver, so we give them their own blood back. Uh, but uh, if if we didn't even do that, they would still be okay.
1: Are the are the donor and the recipient in the same OR or just close? They're in separate ORs, but they're close together. So you just take the liver out, run it across the hall, and put it in the in in the abdomen's already open in the recipient, I assume.
3: We usually start the recipient operation before the donor operation is done to minimize that time that the liver is out. But we've got. We could actually go for about six to eight hours without any detrimental effect on the on the organ, and uh, we don't we try not to run it between the operating rooms. We walk carefully and uh, make sure that you nobody's in our way.
1: That would be a bad deal. So tell us about the new uh, changes, and I know there's some controversy about them, and it has to do with the uh, distribution and the allocation of uh, organs, as uh, outlined by UNOS. That's
3: right. Uh, it's always been fairly controversial about organ allocation across the United States. And when we're talking about organ allocation, we're talking about deceased donor organ allocation. Back around 2000, the government kind of instructed the transplant community to transplant the sickest patients first, particularly for liver transplantation, uh, and also to try and avoid accidents of geography. The United States was divided up into geographical boundaries for organ allocation. And uh, um, Which results in some inequities across the United States where organ availability might be better in one area than another. And in order to move past those boundaries, it has been fairly difficult. It's highly political. Uh, but all the organs such as heart, lung, and liver are now moving towards a radius where they measure the distance between the donor hospital and the recipient hospital and uh, using that radius as an an area for the distribution of the organ rather than artificially defined boundaries.
1: Do you think these are good changes?
3: I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, some of the changes had to be made fairly urgently uh, without the usual modeling that UNOS has done in the past uh, in order to respond to the government requests and requests from the public at large and uh, even some threatening litigation to uh, to quickly change things. And I don't think any of us in the field really know for sure how the changes will work out.
1: Time will tell, I guess.
3: It will. And, there, you know, when you don't have enough organs for everybody that needs them, there's no way that you can legislate or regulate uh, things to increase that supply. Uh, that has to take another task, which is just to increase public awareness about the need for donation.
1: Let's talk to Dr. Rosen, uh, talk to our audience about the importance of organ donation and how they can become an organ donor.
3: Sure. Thank you, Tom. There are over 110,000 people awaiting transplantation in the United States today. Uh, Just checked the website this morning.
1: 110,000?
3: Over. Wow. And uh, actually, the actual number is... uh, 113,689. As of as, today. As of a few minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> um. And uh, as you had mentioned, you know, many people die before an organ becomes available for them. And uh, transplantation is a very successful treatment so that if these patients had an opportunity to undergo transplantation, they'd be able to add life to their years and years to their life, we like to say. When if someone dies, uh, you know, it's usually in a... a, a tragic situation where it's maybe unexpected or uh, caused by a stroke or caused by trauma and they're a potential uh, organ donor, it's a very difficult time for the family. And uh, to think about organ donation takes a very kind of a generous thinking during that time. Uh, And so what we've tried to do is encourage people to think about what they would want to have happen in the event of their death and make that wish known and uh now we can actually designate ourselves as a potential donor in the event of a death uh uh by either registering on the driver's license or on a state registry and actually in Minnesota you can do it with a hunting and fishing license as well and uh to make your wishes known so that your family would not have to struggle with a decision at the time of your death and uh that uh you would be able to benefit other people if if that would be what you choose In general, we think about 95% of the U.S. population favors and supports organ donation, but just under 60%, about 58% have registered as a potential donor, either with a driver's license or a state registry. So we feel that uh, whatever we can do to increase awareness and to bring that 58% up to 95% would be a tremendous success.
1: Well, that's pretty good, though. 60% of people have indicated that they would be a donor at the time of their death. Yes. Well, that's better than it used to be, isn't it? Uh,
3: well, it is, and it's also uh, the, the laws have changed in uh, every state now to allow that, uh, that wish to be made uh, legal so that uh, it's our responsibility to go ahead with procurement if someone has expressed wishes to be a donor at, upon their death.
2: If there's that many people that are supportive and, and positive about organ donation, why isn't presumed consent more the standard?
3: That's a difficult question, and there are some countries that have presumed consent, but uh, there's always the con- the concern that we would undermine the way the public views transplantation and feel that we might be um, pushing something on them that they don't want, uh, whether or not it's important to honor the wishes of the 5% of our population that does not want to donate or feel strongly against it. And uh, we don't want to undermine that trust with the public. So most of us in the transplant community are not in favor with uh, presumed consent.
2: How does how does it happen then? I mean, a tragic something happens, some sort of tragedy happens, whether it's a medical or an accidental or whatever happens. Does the family have to ask about organ donation, or is there is that brought up to them?
3: The way things are in the United States right now, in the event of someone dies in the hospital, which is usually they're on a ventilator, which would be considered some type of life support, but they've suffered a brain death, or for anybody where they're contemplating withdrawal of support so that the patient would then uh, die soon because the prognosis is so terrible and the patient may be miserable... In the event of either of those situations, all hospitals are actually required to work with their local organ procurement organization and to notify that organ procurement organization, we call it an OPO, uh, ab- about the death or an imminent death such that the uh, OPO can uh, approach the family about organ uh, donation or to check to see whether or not the patient uh, has already registered as a potential donor so that their wishes could be honored.
1: So there are only 10% of the people in this country who are absolutely against organ donation?
3: Less Did than I that. We think you it's right? about
1: 5%. All right. So 95% of, of patients are in favor, but we've got about 40% of patients who haven't indicated that, either on their driver's license or with the state registry.
3: That's correct.
1: All right. If you're not a driver, I mean, you can do this in, the, in, in most states. In every, you just, in, in every in state. In every state. Yes. So when you renew your driver's license, you can say, I want to be a donor. That's correct. All right. And if you don't drive, how do you uh, register as a donor?
3: There is a state registry uh, for every state. So, uh, to gain access to that, for instance, for us in Minnesota, North and South Dakota, which is the Life Source Organ Procurement Organization, there's a link to each state's registry on the Life Source homepage.
1: All right. Xenotransplantation. I know for a while people were very hopeful in your field that. They could ultimately transplant pig and or baboon organs into humans, and that would be a good alternative. You wouldn't have to have so many donors.
3: That's right, and uh, it's a very promising uh, future if we were able to do that. Up till now, however, there's a lot of barriers that have prevented us from being successful. The biggest barrier is rejection, where the recipient recognizes that the organ came not just from someone else, but from a different species,
1: and your body says that's a pig
3: (laughs) and tries to fight it (laughs) off. That's correct. Um, But uh, there there are some advances in uh, uh, in trying to uh, do uh, genetic manipulation or Uh, uh, kind of engineering of those tissues so that they're not recognized by the human recipient and there's also some promising research in using animal cells to support people while they await transplantation or to potentially even for somebody that has liver failure to support them until the liver has a chance to recover so that they don't even need a transplant.
2: If we're going to go there what about artificial organs?
3: That would be wonderful, but, uh, up until now, uh, the only artificial organs we really have are dialysis for people in renal failure, uh, insulin pumps for people with diabetes, and, uh, ventricular assist and artificial heart devices, which have some limitations, but even those, uh, um, uh, uh, devices, particularly the total artificial heart, are, are, are reasonable things to, uh, uh, to use for treatment now, and some patients, uh, do take an artificial heart and not a transplant.
1: All right, let's talk about the future. Uh, And everybody's talking about regenerative medicine and stem cells. Do you see a point in time when you'll be able to inject some stem cells into someone's kidney or their heart, and it will actually regenerate and they won't need an, an organ transplant?
3: It's not beyond uh, uh, possibilities. Uh, with the liver in particular, if the skeleton of the liver with the uh, blood vessels and the bile ducts is intact, uh, you could potentially repopulate the liver with liver cells. And the heart has actually been completely taken, uh, and so they've digested the cells away and left the the skeleton or the, the fibrous tissue that holds the heart together and then repopulated that with stem cells so that they can grow back. The difficulty comes in reconstructing the blood supply and everything else that's necessary to keep
1: those cells viable. It's amazing. All right. It is Donate Life Month. Consider being an organ donor and give the gift of life. We've been talking with Dr. Charles Rosen. He is director of the Transplant Center at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Rosen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Always a pleasure.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear two transplant patient stories, one preparing for transplant and another who is celebrating her four-year transplant anniversary.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. An aneurysm is an abnormal bulge or ballooning in the wall of a blood vessel. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, approximately 6 million people are living with unruptured brain aneurysms. Dr. Bernard Bendock, a Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, says a ruptured aneurysm can be life-threatening. A proportion of these patients will go on to have a rupture, and the challenge with rupture is that it's unpredictable, he says. A ruptured aneurysm is a medical emergency because it can cause bleeding in the brain. The typical presentation is somebody who has the worst headache of their life. Fast treatment is essential. It includes open surgery or less invasive options, such as sealing the ruptured artery from within the blood vessel with metal coils and or stents. Dr. Bendock says 1 to 2 percent of the population have aneurysms, and only a small percentage of that group will experience a rupture. People who have a family history of aneurysms have polycystic kidney disease, connective tissue disease, and people who smoke are at increased risk of rupture and should consider screening. If a rupture happens, fast treatment can save lives. In other news, you've probably seen the commercial at some point. Chia pets are fun figurines that grow chia sprouts and resemble an animal's fur or human hair. But chia is also something you can eat, and it has some serious health benefits. It's not just a popular pet. Chia is actually a seed. It's high in protein, fiber, omega-3, fatty acids, and antioxidants. Anya Guy, a Mayo Clinic dietitian and nutrition expert, says chia seeds are small, round black and they're typically found in bags, maybe in the baking section. People often think that chia seeds need to be ground like flax seeds, but you can actually eat them whole because the outer layer is pretty delicate. Now, if you're adding chia seeds to a dish, a typical serving is two tablespoons, which is around four grams of protein, ten grams of fiber, and 140 calories. Guy says some of her favorite ways to use chia seeds are to sprinkle them in salads or breakfast cereals or mix them in the morning smoothie. And there is little taste to the seed, so you're not changing the flavor but still gaining the health benefits. Chia seeds are a complete protein, meaning they have all nine essential amino acids that the body cannot make. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, if your kidneys were failing and you needed a transplant, do you think that one of your friends or maybe even an acquaintance might donate one of their kidneys? Step up to the plate to help you out.
2: I should hope so, but I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> well, it can happen. It can. Say hello to Chad Corey, a videographer at local ABC TV station, and Chris Douglas, who works in media support services at Mayo Clinic. Chad, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
2: Chad has been undergoing hours of dialysis, kidney dialysis, every week for more than a year waiting and even hoping for a donor, a donor who would be a good match. And it turns out that person is someone he didn't even know, a good Samaritan. That acquaintance of Chad's now is Chris Douglas.
1: Chad and Chris, it's a story we, we can't wait to hear. So tell us first, Chad, when did you find out that you had a problem with your kidneys?
4: Well, to begin, I was 13, and I had a tight spot in my ureter. And, uh, you know, you, I'm sorry, you had what? A tight spot. Oh, in, the ureter, the tube in that my goes ureter, from yep. the kidney down to the bladder. Yep, yep. how did you find that out? Just... All of a sudden, I had pain. It was just the weirdest thing, and they said it was from birth. And so, at that point, I had it, you know, removed and put a stint in to keep it, um, keep the keep it open, keep it open, yeah. And, um, you know, from there, from 13 to about 30, everything seemed fine. And then, you know, four years ago, I had gotten sick and I started having the cough, cold kind of thing, and it turned out to be pink eye, double pneumonia, and then they. Realized my creatinine was super high, and so
1: and creatinine is a measure of kidney function
4: correct, yep, and so you know since then, uh, about four and a half years i've been on medication and and just trying to you know keep the life of the kidney going, but um, as of July at the end of July last year um, my basically my kidneys had failed, and it started off as just I thought it was the flu, so I drank water and trying to flush it out and That was obviously not the greatest thing because my kidneys weren't doing anything. So long story short, I ended up in the, um, St. Mary's, the emergency room and, and, um, you know, ended up back in on, on table and, and at one point, you know, everything was getting really intense and my blood pressure got up to 220 and they said I had, could have had a stroke. Um, and it, you know, I had a breathing tube in to keep, you know, my lungs open. And at some point they, um, sedated me and put me under, and I woke up the next day, and they had taken four liters off. You were sick. Mm-hmm.
2: And you've known for a year that this kidney failure was going to n- result in the need for a donated kidney?
4: Yep, that's correct.
2: And you've been waiting that long?
4: It's, I mean, it's been, like I said, since about August, so close to a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, for me, it's unfortunate because a lot of people go years and waiting, and for me, it's it's only been, you know, nine months or so, so very fortunate in my position
2: and no family members were able to donate
4: no i mean my mom you know my mom got tested but not you know didn't work out and um i lost my dad about a year and a half ago so um
1: oh, sorry to hear that so you've been on dialysis for at least a year
4: yep so Dial- and how often do you do that i do that three days a week uh monday tuesday wednesday monday wednesday friday sorry and that and takes how long it's about four hours
1: So every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you get dialyzed until you find a kidney. Mm -hmm. Chris, how did you meet this gentleman? Um, Actually, uh, a few years ago, I used to do
5: freelance high school sports photography for the Byron Review newspaper, a small town just west of Rochester here, and would run into Chad from time to time on the sideline of a soccer game or a basketball game or a track meet or something like that, and we really only just kind of would chit-chat, say hi, those types of things, and Started following Chad on Twitter as, as you tend to do with the people that you meet from time to time doing that. About a year and a half ago, I gave up that, that gig and it was last August. I'm one evening just sitting on the couch, uh, bored with what was on television, started flipping through Twitter and Chad had put out a tweet, something along the lines of, um, I need a kidney transplant. If you know anyone with O positive type blood, see if they're interested. And I've donated blood for years. But I didn't even know my own blood type, so Is there a Yeah, so I went and got my blood donor card and uh it's oh positive. Oh hey, that's me. And right then it just clicked and said I I have to at least try. So the next day I came in to, to work here, I work in media support at Mail and um found the form to fill out and then I put my name on and Chad's name on it, and that started the journey.
2: Well, I I just have to say that I think, Chad, your story has had the most local coverage. Mm-hmm. I mean, of if anybody was going to find a donor that was not related to you, it's funny to me that you two actually knew each other mm-hmm. because your TV station did stories on you. You were on a billboard, yeah. people saying, you know, we need to find a kidney for Chad. So you were a story before Chris came in uh, at this next chapter.
4: Yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm blessed to just be in my position to be able to, I mean, A, know a lot of people through, through my work. And then also, you know, being a photographer, I don't like being on TV and cameras, but you know, I shoot a lot of videos. So it's kind of being in the weird spotlight. But, you know, at the same time, if it, you know, for me, it was obviously to get the word out, but. Not only for me, but to get the, the word out about organ donation in general.
2: Well, it's organ donation month, so that's why we're happy to tell your story. When um, are you going to have the surgery?
4: It'll be April 29th, so in a couple of weeks.
2: How much time is this going to take away from your life?
5: I'm told the recovery time is two to six weeks for a donor. Um, during that six weeks, there's a 10-pound lifting restriction. So um, uh, just have to take it easy. You won't be able to ride, bike. Uh, exercise is going to be limited to pretty much just walking. And then told to expect some pain, you know, the first couple days afterwards as, as an after effect of the surgery. But then after that, I should should just be fine. And so I'm expecting to, they tell you two to six week recovery time. I'm expecting to be out of work only about two weeks. So,
2: Since uh, this has been an ongoing story for Chad and his coworkers, <laughs> is the surgery going to be videotaped?
4: <laughs> I mean, as far as my station, I know that we'll do some, some follow-up because mm-hmm. obviously we covered it in the, the right. beginning, Quite so you gotta, You got to go. Know. That's yeah. right.
2: <laughs> and, and
4: I work in
5: media support here, of course, at Mayo, right. and we produce a lot of the patient head videos and those types of things. And um, I've actually talked with some of my coworkers <laughs> who work in, in the surgical video and said, hey, you know, and with the folks in the transplant center, if you need some video of a kidney transplant for anything, it would be awesome if it was mine. So. Mm-hmm.
4: Definitely, be interesting to see the video.
5: Did you talk to your wife about this and your family? Um, yeah, I have, and they're completely supportive. Um, uh, my mom's a little nervous about it, but every, <laughs> everyone else has been pretty supportive. Um, I, I have three sons; they all think it's great. My wife is she's a nurse here at, at Mayo, and so I have a someone who can kind of watch after me mm-hmm. afterwards a little bit. But um, no, everyone's very supportive and and thinks it's a it's a cool thing.
2: Well, and I would have to join in with what I'm sure both of you are thinking, and that is we hope that this inspires other people to maybe donate one of their kidneys. Mm, Absolutely. So what are you most excited about? I suppose it's getting four hours back every other day.
4: Definitely. I mean, you know, as much as dialysis, I mean, it's it's not, I mean, it is taxing on the body, but, you know, it's part of my life right now, and it's kind of become a routine, but it'll be nice to have that time back and not, you know, have a port in my in my body and, and just kind of be more normal, I guess, if, if that makes sense. My
2: friend that had a kidney donation said that within 24 hours of working, waking up from that surgery he could feel the difference of having a kidney that was mm. operational. So I'm excited for you to be able to feel that much better.
1: I appreciate it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, what a great story. We've been talking with Chad Corey, who is in need of a kidney transplant, and his prior acquaintance, now I guess his best friend, Chris <laughs> Douglas, and he's giving the gift of life. Uh, surgery scheduled for April 29th. The very best to both of you. Thanks so much for sharing your heartwarming story. Thanks for Thank having Thank you. Us. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
5: Julianne Vasicek has always been a competitor. A seven-time state champion in high school, she went on to star on the University of Minnesota Duluth women's ice hockey team, helping lead them to two national championships, becoming an All-American and making the U.S. women's national team. But after all those battles on the ice, the biggest battle of her life was still ahead.
2: In 2008, Julianne was diagnosed with primary sclerosing cholangitis. PSC causes damage to the bile ducts, which eventually quit working. Eventually, the disease results in the need for a liver transplant. And here to share her story and to let me know if I pronounce that correctly is Julianne Vosicek. Welcome to the program, Julianne.
6: The rare disease that is alphabet soup.
2: <laughs> did I get that right? You Primary did. sclerosing cholangitis. You
6: did. You did.
2: All right. Well, you're from Montana. How
6: did you get to Minnesota? Just through hockey? Yep. I was recruited to play Division One hockey at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and that's how I made it over here i 've just fallen in love with Duluth i've tried to move away a couple times, and it's I think the draw of the lake in community. You were
5: obviously a major athlete you played hockey for many years. Did you have any health concerns while you were while you were an athlete while you were playing?
6: You know it didn't really start until um, I was the summer actually before I was coming to college. I was eighteen and um, I started to have some digestive issues and so At the end of that year of school, actually a week before the national championship, um, my team was on the ice practicing and I was in for my first colonoscopy. And it, you know, felt so huge at that, at that time to be, you know, 18 and diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And I had just had symptoms all season and it was very difficult to deal with. So when did you get diagnosed with PSC? So PSC diagnosis came in 2008. Explain a little bit about what PSC is. Well, it is a crappy disease. I probably shouldn't say it on the radio, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Well, it's a disease that affects the bile ducts. So your bile ducts are like a tree inside your liver, and those bile ducts get scarred. Uh, your body is sort of attacking itself. But, so it's autoimmune in nature, but it's not quite autoimmune. And so you sort of go through these roller coasters. It's a little bit like hockey shifts where you peak and then you come down you get a period of rest. And so those bile ducts get scarred up and you you come in for therapy, so to speak. Uh, you might have a procedure, like a scope going down your throat to open those ducts up. But that's only usually a temporary thing. Um, you'll have some stents placed and then, you know, that might buy you some time until the next progression. So over time, you know, that period might decrease or, you know, there's a possibility of having infections and, and things like that. So, you know, various hospital visits. And then it's just the symptoms. I mean... It's fatigue that you live with every day. It's an invisible illness, essentially. Terrible, terrible itching um, that yeah. doesn't express itself on the skin, except in the form of you sort of cutting yourself. It's mm-hmm. maddening. So it's, um, it's a disease that's very mentally demanding um, as well as physically.
5: Is that a day-to-day thing? I mean, what, what's day-to-day life like with this?
6: Day-to-day life is waking up and, you know, really feeling like you're starting behind behind everybody else, And, you know, I know there were some days at work where I would go to work and and I'm fine, I'm working. But around 11 o'clock, it's like, oh, my brain would click in. It'd be like, okay, I'm here now. The fatigue is worn off a bit. And, you know, the itching, you might be hiding it under the desk or wearing Mm -hmm. long sleeves just affects it. So So how is PSC treated? Well, currently there aren't any valid treatments for PSC. Um, There are a number of, of drugs that are in line on different levels of clinical trials. But there is no drug that you can take. It's really just symptom management. So the actual scoping and things like that, those are sort of what I would consider therapies that prolong your ability to live with the
2: disease. I can see uh, see from your T-shirt, you've got your PSC partners seeking a cure. So you must be uh, working with other people who have PSC. Is that kind of common or most people's symptoms similar to what you experienced, or is it all over the board?
6: Well, it's it's an individual disease. There's different uh, branches of PSC. Uh, they're finding out, and so PSC Partner Seeking a Cure is a nonprofit uh, out of Colorado, and they were formed, gosh, uh, about 13, 14 years ago now. So they have an annual conference, and you know when I went there, it's like you go there and you have a family. You know this rare disease only affects about 30,000 people in the U.S., about 100,000 worldwide. So it's I think I saw a statistic like seven in a million will be diagnosed with it. Most PSCers never meet another person with the disease. One thing I want to mention, if I could, is that the PSC partner Seeking a Care has a patient registry. And I know there's also a patient registry in Europe as well. And so um, if there's other PSC people listening or doctors, please encourage, whether the member with PSC has passed away or is living, to sign up for this uh, patient registry at pscpartners.org, and it's funded by the NIH, and it puts um, patient data into researchers' hands.
5: You mentioned that this is a very individualized disease. You ended up having a a transplant. Talk to us about what led up to that and how that experience was for you.
6: Yeah, well, people um, at the end of their PSC course uh, may or may not need a liver transplant. And, you know, that's, that's trading one disease for another. It's not a cure. And so, um, PSC can come back after the transplant, which is kind of a bummer. But, um, You know, I knew that I would very likely eventually need a liver transplant because I'm so young, but I wasn't to that place where I needed to be listed yet, and we weren't talking about it yet. Um, Dr. John Poderuca was my doctor at the time. And so, you know, actually, my labs looked really good uh, in 2015, uh, around January, February. And so, you know, we set out, you know, come back in six months. At my job, I was working at UMD and happened to be having an organ donation PSC awareness night with the school, and I had had a fever the week before, wasn't feeling well, so I kind of knew that I was probably going to need to go in. You know, I went in on Sunday and thought, I'm probably just having a cholangitis attack. You know, it sounds so blasé, but you get used to that. Right. And uh, I did go in, and I have a few memories from Monday and Tuesday, but the next thing that I really remember, uh, basically from the 23rd to March 5th, is myself waking up. And I woke up and one of my former teammates and best friends, um, Megan Stotz poked around the curtain. You know, we're talking and I said, You know, what's going on? And she said, You don't know what happened? And I said, No. She said, You had a liver transplant. Oh my god. And gosh. of course I just oh I what? You, <laughs> you know? didn't even have time to get nerves or anxiety about the procedure. No, like I said, I was not listed and so what had happened is we would find in hidesight on that Thursday. So I went to the hospital Late Sunday, early Monday, and just started to gain fluid, and um, my body was starting to shut, shut down. down. And what was happening is I had a second rare disease come in the presence of the PSC called Bud Chiari syndrome, and that blocked uh, that clotted the liver or the veins of my liver. Yeah. And so it was. It's hard to tell when that clot came, but the one risk of that is that it can come and cause fulminant liver failure. It's exactly what happened. And so was able to come by mail medical transport and um you know, my wonderful nurse that I've met uh kept me going and and early Thursday morning I was listed and mm. incredibly the liver became available Friday and I was at the top of the list. There was about seven thousand people on the list in the nation. And four years later now, how are you feeling? Um I'm feeling the best I have actually since college. Um, because of the disease because of psc and having lived with that and because i probably had it for a number of years before i was diagnosed so it's a different feeling obviously um you know physically in college i was about uh, 35 pounds heavier and a lot of muscle and playing Mm -hmm. hockey competitively but now i'm as i was doing the other day uh on the treadmill here at Mayo clinic uh dr stewart uh, let me come up on the treadmill and skate and uh it's like coming full circle and physically going from, you know, barely being able to walk and move after the transplant to kind of honing into something that I've been doing almost as long as I was walking uh, was quite an incredible experience. That's
2: fabulous. Well, April is Donate Life Month, so obviously you're excited about... Uh- are you going to get a cake for yourself, or you know, what do you do to celebrate organ donation? Well, my
6: my birthday was February ninth, and my transplant birthday was the twenty eighth, uh-huh. which is rare disease today, actually. So, I uh, I've had enough cake. But um, what would you share with people about organ donation? Well, it's um, you know, it's it's incredible. I have I have not met my donor, but I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of uh, donor families, and you know, I'm I'm here today because one person made that selfless decision, and I really honestly don't know if how long I would have been able to, to hold out. So, you know, it saves lives and, you know, you have a chance to help a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So, um, you know, take that step and sign up. If you've been thinking about it, do it now. Uh, you know, you never know when, you know, that moment is going to come and you certainly want to have that settled before that moment so your family doesn't have to struggle with that decision. My big thing is... um We got this water bottle, and on that water bottle, it said one person can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that is something I absolutely believe in, because one person made a difference for me.
2: We've been talking with patient Julianne Vazacek here at Mayo Clinic for her four-year checkup after liver transplant.
6: Thanks so much for your story. Thank you very much for having me on. And that's our program for this week.
2: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. Tom Shives, I'm Tracy McRae.
0: Thanks for joining us.